Our speaker today is independent writer and philosopher Matthew Stewart. He's a resident of Brookline, Massachusetts, and graduated from Princeton University with a concentration in political philosophy, and was awarded the Sachs Scholarship from Princeton for study at Oxford University, where he earned a PhD in philosophy. He is the author of Nature's God, which was long listed for the 2014 National Book Award and shortlisted for the Ralph Waldo Emerson Prize. Stewart is also the author of The Courtier and the Heretic, Leibniz, Spinoza, and the Fate of God in the Modern World, The Management Myth, Debunking the Modern Philosophy of Business, and numerous other books and articles on the history of ideas. Prior to writing full-time, he worked as a management consultant. This afternoon, Stewart will discuss the true meanings of nature's God, the pursuit of happiness, and the radical political philosophy with which the American experiment in self-government began. Please join me in welcoming Matthew Stewart to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, Randall, for that very kind um, introduction. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you, Randall, also for mentioning that I'm an independent scholar. Um, it reminds me of something that someone told me once when I was giving a lecture at a college. They said, what's the difference between an independent scholar and a pizza? And I think, pizza feeds a family of four. <laughs> so here I am. Um, I write books of philosophy, and I am often advised that um, they are better than any form of sleep medication. So uh, today I'd like to approach this talk by giving you some scenes from American history. Uh, and I will hopefully get to the philosophical reflections after delivering the scenes. One of the scenes comes from my recent book, Nature's God, and then three of them uh, are from uh, a book that I hope will be forthcoming on the philosophical origins of the Civil War. So the, the phrase nature's God is, of course, famous, as you know, from the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, uh, which assures us that the colonists of North America are entitled to claim their separate and equal station uh, by virtue of the powers, uh, uh, by virtue of the laws of nature and nature's God. So when I started my previous book, uh, one of the things I did was to go out and look for early references to nature's God in colonial literature. And here's scene one is the story of one of those early references. So it's Boston, 1770, a few months after the Boston Massacre. And George Whitefield, he's the famous uh, evangelical preacher, famous from the First Great Awakening, is in town. And he's going to give his, one of his final sermons. And his topic is evil. Now, in order to understand where Whitefield is coming from, we have to step back a couple of months. There was an exchange of letters between Whitefield and Benjamin Franklin. They have a curious relationship. Um, they share a knack for marketing to the common man. Uh, they share a lot of their political views, but they have absolutely nothing in common in philosophy and religion. So in the middle of one of his letters, Franklin writes to Whitefield, I rather suspect that though the general government of the universe is well administered, our particular little affairs are perhaps below notice and left to take the chance of human prudence or imprudence. It is, however, an uncomfortable thought, and I leave it. So these are classically deist sentiments. There's a God, but he's in general administration. He takes care of the planets and the comets, and he lets human beings get on with their affairs. Uh, Whitefield 
is horrified. So he scribbles in the margins of his letter, uncomfortable indeed, and blessed be God, unscriptural. So now Whitefield's giving his sermon on evil, and he might have chosen, I suppose, any number of uh, uh, ways of addressing the topic of evil. Uh, but this is the way he decided to approach it. He said the source of evil in the world is the sect of deists. And the founder of deism, he says, was Cain. And it ha this has something to do with the fact that Cain sacrificed only vegetables to God and not um, animal fats like Abel. So it's a complicated argument. We'll set it aside. But one man stands up uh, to defend deists. It's quite remarkable. Uh, and that man is... Thomas Young. Uh, so it's fair if you say who. Uh, well, uh, unless you've read my book, you probably won't know, but I think he's one of the great unsung heroes of the American Revolution. Uh, very briefly, he was the first individual to propose that the way to deal with the tea was to throw it into the harbor. Uh, and he was also, uh, among many other things, one of the principal forces behind the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, which is one of the, perhaps the first uh, modern constitution. Uh, so he was quite an interesting figure. Uh, but the other important thing about Thomas Young is that he was an out-and-out -out deist, an outspoken infidel, as they called him in those days. So Young offers two lines of response to Whitefield's uh, libel on deists. He says, first, deists are actually good people. And he points to the ancient Persians. He says, um, they were strong, noble, virtuous, uh, but their religion was not Christianity. It was refined deism, or the pure unalloyed religion of nature. And his second argument, as far as with respect to the vegetable sacrifice uh, issue, he says, a God who built our stupendous cosmos and operates it through laws of nature will not be very impressed by the burning of animal fats. So Whitefield has an answer to this. He says, the founder of deism was not Cain, after all. It was Satan, because Satan was the first who denied revelation in favor of reason. And Young fires back. And the debate continues and gets two presses going. Uh, and toward the end of the skirmish, Young lays down what I think is the most interesting sentence published in an American newspaper in 1770. Which is perhaps sad reflection on me, I don't know, but here it goes. That the religion of nature, more properly styled the religion of nature's God, in Latin called Deus, hence deism, is truth, I now boldly defy thee to contest. So he goes on to suggest that readers could learn more about this religion of nature and of nature's God from Alexander Pope, uh, Alexander Pope's little essay on man, which he says was deduced from the inspiration of Lord Bolingbroke. So Alexander Pope was, in fact, the English poet who first introduced the phrase nature's God to the um, English world in 1734. Uh, and he was, in fact, borrowing from Lord Bolingbroke, who, by the way, should count as Thomas Jefferson's favorite philosopher. Um, so that's scene one, and I'm going to draw your attention to three uh, aspects or three themes from it that I think are important. The first is that nature's God, whatever it is, um, is clearly not the kind of God that went to church on Sundays in colonial America. There was something very controversial about the ideas behind nature's God, and in a nutshell, they have to do with this contrast between reason and revelation or with the idea that nature's God must be the kind of deity that operates through laws of nature as opposed to through uh, miracles, prophecies, and other forms of revelation. 
The second important theme that I'd like to draw your attention to is that there is a long preceding history of philosophy behind this concept of nature's God. Thomas Young refers to Alexander Pope and Lord Bolingbroke, but in fact it goes much deeper into the history than that. Um, I've just written a long book about it, so I'll just wave in the general direction of that and point out that it involves people like, uh, philosophers like um, Socrates, Epicurus, uh, Giordano Bruno, Gassendi, Hobbes, Spinoza, Locke, um, and more. Uh, and then the third very general theme I'd like to draw your attention to is that this radical philosophical tradition that culminates in nature's God is in some way pretty deeply connected with America's revolutionary project. Uh, and you will find that many of the same ideas that appear in Thomas Young quite explicitly also appear in different forms with subtle variations in the work of people like uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, uh, Madison Washington, Ethan Allen, Philip Freneau, and a number of others. So that's scene one, the, the revolution. Okay, now I want to take you to a completely different scene. Um, and I feel I should offer what you know, on the campuses they call a kind of trigger warning here, because there's a bit of violence and, and bad language. Um, so it's the eastern shore of Chesapeake Bay uh, in Maryland, August 1833, going up to August 1834. Uh, the people came from far away to be saved, in covered wagons and carts, by foot and on a pair of packed steamboats. In the middle of the wide green field by the bay, they found a rough-hewn altar and an enclosed pen laid with straw where sinners could kneel. Frederick was about 16 years old in that summer of 1833. He stood in the narrow, invisible space behind the preacher's stand marked for colored people. His eyes were on his master, Captain Ald, who occupied a station in the first rows. Frederick, having experienced a conversion of his own some three years previously, indulged the hope that religion would make his master more kind and humane. At the urging of the preachers, Captain Old staggered into the pen and kneeled in the straw. His face turned red, his hair fell into disarray, his body shook. A lonely tear trickled halfway down his cheek as if uncertain whether it should proceed or return to its source. The people exulted, Captain Old has come through. And upon returning home, Captain Old took to praying morning, noon, and night. He invited so many holy men to dinner that the residence was soon known to all as the preacher's home. He did not, however, become a more kind and humane slave master. On the contrary, Frederick said, he proved much worse after his conversion than before. One of Ald's slaves was Fred's cousin, cousin Henny. As a toddler, Henny had fallen into a fire and burned her hands so badly that they were useless to her. Ald resented the expense of feeding a slave who couldn't do much useful work. From time to time, he would strip off her shirt, tie her up, and whip her with a heavy cowskin lash. On some mornings, Ald would whip Henny before breakfast, leave her tied up for several hours while he went to a store, and then return home to have his dinner, after which he would whip her again along the wounds opened up in the morning session. While lacerating his disabled slave, Ald would recite Luke 14.27, he that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. Ald eventually realized that Henny wouldn't go away unless he sent her away, so he set her adrift to take care of herself. That is, he left her out to starve and die. As the summer of religious revival gave way to a winter of pinching frost, the time came for Frederick to be broken. Captain Ald had had enough of Frederick scrounging for food from the neighbors, or maybe he just needed to do something about the insolence in those 16-year-old eyes. The job fell to Edward Covey, a poor but ambitious farmer who lived in the Bayside area 
not far from the revival campground. Covey enjoyed a local reputation as a pious soul and a professor of religion, but he also enjoyed a reputation for his ability to train young slaves for a lifetime of obedience. In Frederick's words, Covey was a nigger breaker. The beating started on the third day. Covey laid into Frederick with a lash, raising welts as thick as a finger and causing the blood to drip off his back. For six months in the Maryland cornfields, Covey whipped Frederick with diligent ferocity and worked him until there was no work left in him. By the summer of 1834, the training seemed complete. I was broken in body and soul and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. This, he said, is how a man is made a slave. On a hot August afternoon, following a round of assaults that extended over several days, Frederick suddenly turned around and seized Covey by the throat. He clamped his fingers down hard enough to draw blood. For several hours that afternoon, the two men struggled violently. Though careful not to inflict serious injury, Frederick stood his ground. Covey at last retreated under the feeble pretense of having finished the whipping, and he henceforth kept his distance. The fight with Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave, Frederick said. The spring returned to his step, and he redoubled his determination to escape. This, he said, is how a slave is made a man. So I'm, of course, talking about Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist. Um, and I want to draw your attention to three uh, aspects about Douglass's life and thought that I think are encoded in this, these scenes and that I, I find particularly fascinating. Um, the first is that Douglass consistently maintained uh, that the institution of slavery depended in some crucial way on the support of organized popular religion. So that episode was, in fact, pretty typical for him, and he repeated the message quite a few times. He said, of all the slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. If forced back into slavery, I should regard being the slave of a religious master the gravest calamity that could befall me. The church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, it actually takes sides with the oppressor and the teachings of the northern pulpit differ little from those of the south. He's talking, of course, about organized religion, but then he can always, of course, say that the, the meaning or the theory is different from the organization. The second interesting theme in Douglass's life and, and thought is that uh, he was committed to a naturalism in ethics. So right and wrong, in his mind, follow not from divine decrees or commandments, but from the laws of nature. Uh, and I think this is the lesson that he took from Covey's field, and he expressed it quite explicitly later on in the context of the struggle over women's rights. For example, he said, our natural powers are the foundations of our natural rights. Man can only exercise the powers he possesses, and he can only conceive of rights in the presence of powers. And during the Civil War, Douglas, in a sense, put these ideas into practice by recruiting black soldiers for the Union Army. Uh, both free and ex-slave, and ultimately about 200,000 answered that call. And the third important theme for me in Douglas's life and thought is that, um, which is only implicit in, the, in the, that scene, is that um, he was very interested in, in and influenced by uh, the history, history of radical, mainly European philosophy. So if you go to the uh, Douglas home on Cedar Hill in Anacostia in Washington, Go upstairs to the library, and you will see uh, next to the bookshelves two busts. One is a bust of David Friedrich Strauss, and the other one is a bust of Ludwig Feuerbach. It's fine if you say who, but they were a big deal in the middle of the 19th century, and they were a big deal because they were 
Uh, first, the, I would say the chief representatives of this same tr radical tradition of philosophy that led to nature's God. And secondly, basically in their, in their time, they were known as the most famous atheists of their day. So it would be kind of like walking into somebody's study and seeing a, a bust of um, Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins or something like that. Uh, in an 1855 lecture on the history and principles of the anti-slavery movement, Douglas drew all of these themes together uh, in a passage that I hope will make clear the link with my own discussion today. So I'm going to read it to you. He said, it is an error to speak of this venerable anti-slavery movement as a new thing under the sun. The causes producing it and the particles composing it, like the great forces of the physical world, fire, steam, and lightning, have slumbered in the bosom of nature since the world began. Whence are these elements? I trace them to nature and to nature's God. Okay, scene three, Faneuil Hall, October 1850. For several evenings at the end of October 1850, the Vigilance Committee of Boston gathered in a tense and darkened room in Faneuil Hall. Douglas was there along with many fellow abolitionists. Word had gotten out that the fugitive slave hunters were prowling around town with a warrant for the arrest of William and Ellen Craft. The Crafts were world famous for the artistry of their escape from Georgia. Ellen, who was of mixed race and light skin, disguised herself as a young, infirm male planter. And William played the part of his, her personal slave. So scrambling the boundaries of race, sex, and class, they brazenly rode first-class trains and steamboats north to freedom. A pair of bounty hunters had taken up residence at the United States Hotel in Boston. They were said to be as ugly as they were evil. A handbill distributed by indignant abolitionists alleged that the face of one of these miscreants was uncommon bad. The Vigilance Committee resolved to meet ugly with ugly. Every moment is liable to bring bloodshed and carnage, Douglas scribbled in a hasty note to a friend. A member of the committee was needed to deliver the threat of violence in person to the despicable duo. And the name of Theodore Parker was put forward. An objection was heard. This show of force was no task for a clergyman. Parker stood up and announced, this committee can appoint me to no duty that I will not perform. And at that moment, Douglas later said, I got a peep into Parker's soul. Parker made sure that William Craft was prepared to face his kidnappers. I inspected his weapons. His powder had a good kernel, and he kept it dry. His pistols were of excellent proof. I tested his poniard. The blade had a good temper. The point was sharp. There was no law for him but the law of nature. He was armed and equipped as that law directs. Parker had no qualms about the, what the law of nature entailed in this case. The fugitive has the same natural right to defend himself that he has against a murderer or a wolf. Parker hustled William over to the home of Lewis Hayden, a prominent black abolitionist and station master in the Underground Railroad. He next picked up Ellen and drove her through the dark hours of the morning to a hideaway house in Brookline. He took along a hatchet just in case. A few days later, there was a scare, so Parker fished Ellen out of Brookline and brought her into his own home. I have written my sermons with a pistol on my desk, loaded and ready for action, he said. He was quick to draw a direct connection between his personal call to arms and the revolutionary heroism of his famous grandfather. When I write in my library at home, there hangs the firelock that my grandfather, Captain John Parker, zealously used in the Battle of Lexington. So with the craft sheltered, Parker marched at the front of a belligerent mass of 60 men to the United States Hotel. They found the slave catchers outside their rooms. 
Parker was polite but fierce. The would-be kidnappers, eyeing the plainclothes minister and his surly backup, apparently got the message. That same afternoon, they were spotted on the first train out of Boston to New York. The danger had passed, but only for the moment. It was decided that the crafts would, could not remain safely in the land of the free. But there was one detail still to resolve before sending them off to Canada and then to England. William and Ellen had never been properly married. So on November 7th, Parker performed the ceremony. And as a parting gift, he gave the couple two wedding presents, a Bible and a Bowie knife. And Parker described the knife as a sword, and he seemed eager for it to be used at any provocation. So here are the handful of things that I would like you to know about Theodore Parker. First, he was an anti-slavery militant. And by that, I mean he was no pacifist. He ultimately ended up becoming a member of the Secret Six, the six individuals who funded John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. He was an avid promoter of democracy, and in his lectures and sermons from the 1840s and 50s, over and over again, he refers to the American idea as involving government of, by, and for the people. Which brings up a third point. He was, in fact, Lincoln's favorite theologian, according to a number of uh, sources. And there's decent evidence that Lincoln made use of Parker's writings. He was actually the favorite preacher for a lot of radicals. So if you can name uh, one of the famous Boston transcendentalists or reformists from that period, chances are they were a follower or an admirer of, of Parker, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Julia Ward Howe, Louisa May Alcott, Charles Summer, Horace Mann, Wendell Phillips, Garrison, and so on. Uh, and his influence was extended farther than we tend to remember. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King's famous phrase, the, arc of the, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That was actually uh, Parker's uh, phrase. Uh, he was extremely well-read, especially in advanced German philosophy. And he was particularly influenced by, among others, David Friedrich Strauss whose bust is in, in Douglas's um, library. He was notorious as an infidel. He was kicked out of the Unitarian Church for heresy, which is, seems like a feat. Uh, he was almost brought up on charges of atheism, along with Abner Neeland, who was uh, the last man jailed for atheism in Boston. Uh, and the various ministers and holy men of Boston described him as vehemently deistical, a diabolical pantheist, a blasphemous monster, the most vile creature yet vomited up from hell, and the second coming of Thomas Paine. Um, now, his theological position, in fact, is complex. And, and you read his stuff today, and you probably think he's in garden variety, Unitarian, and, and theist. Um, but if you read it closely, you read his uh, speculations closely, and you're familiar with the history of uh, the philosophy of nature's God, it'll actually sound pretty familiar. And I'll give you a few snippets. I take not the Bible for my master, nor even Jesus of Nazareth. The law of nature represents the modes of action of God himself, his thought made visible. The universe is his scripture. Nature is the prose and man the poetry of God. Now in one sermon, Parker sums up his defense of this philosophical conception of God by citing, without mentioning the source, some lines of poetry. This is the kind of thing I get a kick out of because I, I recognize the poem. But this is what he says, the god of philosophy warms in the sun, refreshes in the breeze, glows in the stars and blossoms in the trees, lives through all life, extends through all extent, 
spreads undivided, operates unspent. So as it turns out, these lines, um, although Parker doesn't mention it, come from Alexander Pope's essay on man. And they come uh, in a section where he is elaborating on the meaning of the phrase, nature's God. Okay, so now I'm up to scene four. Um, and I want to take you to the steps of the Capitol, Washington, D.C., March 4th, 1865. Abraham Lincoln is delivering his second inaugural address. And Frederick Douglass, as it happens, is in the audience. And by the way, there's a nice photo which shows that somewhere in the corner there's a smudge that is apparently uh, James Wilkes Booth, also in the audience. So this address um, is one of Lincoln's masterpieces, of course, and it's probably best remembered today as Lincoln's effort to lay the stage for reconciliation and reunion. So he acknowledges that slavery was somehow the cause of the war, but then he also says that the North shares in the blame for the offense with the South. Um, and the speech is also generally, generally regarded as a very religious one, and it does have more biblical allusions and, and God talk than pretty much any inaugural address um, since. So I want to draw your attention to two passages in ascending order of interest, and I hope they'll connect with my general theme here. Here's one. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. Okay, so what, what does this mean? I find with Lincoln's writing, you do have to actually say, what on earth is he getting at? Um, so the first line, um, you could read it as sort of pious and hopeful, and some commentators do. They say, well, it means we all read from the same Bible, so really we should be getting along. Uh, but you can also read it in a sarcastic vein, as along the lines of two men say they're Jesus, one of them must be wrong. The second sentence in that passage um, has at least two Bible references. So one is to Genesis, where God tells Adam that as punishment uh, for his sin, by the sweat of your face, you will eat. Um, and the other reference is to the Gospel of Matthew, who says, judge not, lest you be judged. So does that mean that it's all biblical and we're appealing to the Bible here as an explanation for the Civil War? Well, um, what we know about Lincoln's intellectual biography, uh, and it's not, unfortunately, that much, um, doesn't lend itself to the notion that, at least personally, he would have been making an appeal to revealed religion. Um, Lincoln's first biographer, as well as his first political opponent when he ran for Congress in 1846, claimed that as a young man he wrote a polemical tract against the very idea of revealed religion and against scripture, very much in the spirit of Thomas Paine, uh, and that his friends somewhat melodramatically threw it into the flames before it could be discovered by his political opponents. Lincoln never denied the charge. In fact, he wrote an incredibly interesting and evasive letter on the topic. And there's good reason to think that it's basically true. Um, there's also decent evidence that Lincoln was, in fact, a reader of Paine and of the Comte de Volnay. That's a radical French philosopher who caused a fairly big scandal in early America by putting forward a version of the religion of nature and of nature's God in a book called The Ruins uh, that was, in fact, translated by Thomas Jefferson and uh, his friend Joel Barlow. Now, in that book, by Volney, as it turns out, 
uh, Volney actually considers a situation in which two sides of a war invoke God's aid against the other. Uh, and in this case, he was talking about the Russians and the Turks, each one furiously insisting that God was on their side. Um, and at least in Volney's case, it's pretty clear that he was being um, sarcastic. But there's actually a still more interesting connection with Volney and Lincoln's possible early exposure to um, Enlightenment philosophy. So it turns out that Lincoln made the point about the sweat of other men's faces in at least a couple of other prior occasions. Um, in a speech from 1860, he said, if anything can be proved by natural theology, it is that slavery is morally wrong. God gave man a mouth to receive bread, hands to feed it, and his hand has a right to carry bread to his mouth without controversy. This, he says, is clearly proved by natural theology apart from revelation. So Lincoln's point, which he makes in the address through a biblical reference, is actually one that he thinks you can prove through natural theology or an appeal to some sort of naturalistic divinity. Um, so where did Lincoln get this natural theology on which he based this argument against slavery that he cites in his address? Well, it turns out that Volney made pretty much the same argument uh, and in pretty similar language. So here he is in the ruins. All men having equally eyes, hands, mouths, and ears, and the necess necessity of making use of them in order to live, have by this reason alone an equal right to life and to the use of the ailments which maintain it. So in short, there's a decent case to be made that where Lincoln appeals to the Bible against slavery, in fact, he's appealing to the writings of a naturalistic, notoriously atheistic French philosopher. But I turn now to the second and most interesting and complex passage in Lincoln's address. Uh, and I'm sure you know, you'll recognize the basic words because they, they're sort of in the back of everybody's mind who's familiar with American history. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war shall soon pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So what a strange sentence. Again, the question, what, what does it mean? Um, it certainly sounds religious. So there's a God, and he has the power to will wars to continue or not. He must have a plan, and whatever it is, we know it's the right plan. On the other hand, if you read it a second or third time, you realize that this isn't a kind of typical God bless America speech, because he makes it very clear that we don't know and can't know what God's plan is. We don't know if he's on our side or on America's side or on the Union side or on anybody's side at all. And then there's this strange suggestion that the only discernible form of justice in the world is a kind of natural justice where every drop of blood drawn by the lash is paid for by another drawn by the sword. So maybe he's saying that there is a fixed and eternal law of nature along the lines of if you make the mistake of enslaving people, you will ultimately pay the price, not in the afterlife, but in your own blood and treasure. And even if it's true that all we have is this kind of natural justice and that God doesn't get involved in bending the laws of nature on our behalf, it's all still good because maybe God is just another word for this 
collection of eternal laws of nature. So which is it? What does it mean? Well, here's some clues. I can't say that I know, but here are a few clues that I'll offer. One comes from Lincoln's own writing. Um, in the fall of 1864, around the time that he was composing his second inaugural address, an English visitor came to call, uh, and they had a curious exchange about English poetry. And the visitor reported that Lincoln seemed to be a great admirer of Alexander Pope, especially of his essay on man, going so far as to say that it contained all the religious instruction which, which it was necessary for a man to know. And then Lincoln apparently quoted from memory some lines from Pope's essay on man, and they go, all nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see, all discord harmony not understood, all partial evil universal good, and spite of pride and erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is, is right. So these lines from the essay on man follow very closely, they're just a couple lines down from the lines that Theodore Parker had in his sermon that I just read to you, and they form part of the description of nature's God. So was, was Lincoln, Lincoln referring to nature's God or Alexander Pope? I don't know. But um, we do know what Frederick Douglass thought. So as I mentioned, Frederick Douglass was in the audience listening to the second inaugural address. Uh, and when, he was, when it was over, he rushed to the White House for the after party. Um, and at first they wouldn't let him in because, you know, racism. Uh, but he finally got in, and Lincoln called him over. Uh, and Lincoln, according to Douglas's account, asked him, what did you think? What did you think of the address? And, uh, and Douglas replied, well, Mr. President, that was a sacred effort. Uh, and then for the rest of his life, Douglas maintained that Lincoln's second inaugural address was the, the finest presidential speech ever delivered. And he pointed in particular to that long sentence about the blood of the lash and the blood of the sword. And he said, such a sentence I never heard from the lips of any man in his position before. And in a eulogy delivered in the month after Lincoln's assassination, Douglas explained what he thought that sentence meant. The second inaugural address, he said, was a recognition of the operation of inevitable and universal laws of nature as old as eternity. In this struggle, Lincoln was willing to let justice have its course. You remember with what solemn emphasis he expressed this on the 4th of March. And then Douglas goes on to cite completely the passage I just read to you. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray. So as far as Frederick Douglass was concerned, Lincoln was inviting his fellow Americans to understand the Civil War and emancipation, not as a result of a miraculous intervention from on high, nor as a fulfillment of some autochthonous, exceptionalist American culture, but on the contrary, as the work of the laws of nature and of nature's God. So those are my four scenes, and now I'll just offer you a kind of summary of why I think these are interesting. I haven't put it all together yet. The book is not written, um, but it will get there one day. Um, for me, these scenes are interesting because they raise three lines of questioning. Um, the first is, what, what was the Civil War about? What was it? Does it have a meaning? What was it? So it's often suggested um, as if by way of indirect self-congratulation that the United States survived the Civil War without changing its form of government. 
And it's also often taken for granted that the religious, philosophical, uh, and political development of the United States has been a relatively continuous affair from 1776 on, with the Civil War perhaps representing a speed bump or a course correction. Um, I want to ask if that's really true. I think if you follow the thinking of Douglas, Parker, and Lincoln, uh, I'm going to call them the, the re-founders of America, uh, the Civil War clearly marks a religious and philosophical crisis. Uh, the great lesson from the first half of the 19th century for them was that America's spiritual and cultural resources, its biblical religion and its political culture, uh, were catastrophically inadequate to deal with America's greatest problem, which was the institution of slavery. And if you follow the intellectual trajectory of these refounders, what you'll find is that American intellectual life in their time was intensely involved in a kind of rediscovery and recovery of radical enlightenment ideas. I think the same radical enlightenment that inspired the first American Revolution, although in this case the names were different. Uh, many of them were German, as it turns out, uh, and they had some interesting innovations to add. And if you follow the political theory and the politics of these refounders, of Parker, Douglas, and Lincoln, uh, the Civil War starts to look not just like a revolution, but a particular kind of revolution. And it was, in, in a certain sense, a form of slave insurrection. So more precisely, it was a kind of managed slave insurrection from the perspective of someone like uh, Douglas or uh, in anticipation Parker, uh, with Lincoln as the kind of manager and Douglas as one of the key liaisons. Um, on the whole, I think that the, the career of nature's God in the trajectory leading up to the Civil War is particularly interesting because it makes United States history look much more like part of a global movement, a global movement of ideas um, and part of a transition to uh, the modern world. Uh, the second general question that attracts me to these scenes and these, this cluster of uh, philosophers and, and, and actions is that um, they, they raise this question for me, what, what is it about America's strange relation with its founders? I mean, why, why do we keep going back and asking what Jefferson thought or what Lincoln thought? I mean, in, in, in a certain sense, it's deeply bizarre, right, that when we face major issues, we turn around and say, well, what would this 18th century individual who wore very strange clothes and probably owned slaves, what would they do in this situation, right? Um, but I think that uh, by looking at the re-founders, Douglas Parker, Lincoln, and people like that, we can sort of think about those problems because they were facing exactly those issues. Uh, and for them, someone like Jefferson represents this paradox. On the one hand, Jefferson is the one most closely identified with the idea of America, the idea that we have a government of, by, and for the people. And on the other hand, Jefferson was very closely associated with slavery. And I guess the, the third uh, general question that I have that, this, that attracts me to this uh, project is um, why is there this strange and persistent uh, correlation between America's revolutionary activism in both revolutions, the original one in the Civil War, and philosophical or religious radicalism and heterodoxy? Now, to be clear, I, I, I'm talking about a correlation. Uh, it's not for one for one. You have representatives of all philosophical and religious perspectives on all sides of every issue. Um, 
And to be doubly clear, it isn't at all obvious to me that we should care, because it isn't at all obvious that there is a direct link between philosophical and religious um, questions and then political action. Um, and to be triply clear, um, the interesting thing for me is the fact that they were heterodox or heretical, not necessarily that they adhered to a particular philosophy or a particular line of thought, but that systematically, over and over again, you find that they were at odds with their countrymen, that they adopted religious and philosophical positions that were heretical, heterodox, radical, that got them hounded out of town. But that today, by the way, would be regarded as you know, plain vanilla and you know, on for sale at the shopping mall. So I want to suggest that these, um, this kind of heresy that keeps coming up in America's foundings and refoundings reflects a certain fundamental paradox about uh, modern democracy. Um, and it's a paradox that those same founders appreciated well. So they understood that a genuine democracy is not, as we sometimes carelessly assume, a form of government that simply tabulates the preferences and prejudices of a majority of the people at any particular point in time, but rather true self-government is, in some sense, rational self-government. Rational self-government requires that people submit their beliefs to the kind of uh, interrogation, criticism, questioning uh, that might force them to change their minds. Um, and democracy, therefore, doesn't begin with the assumption that people's beliefs are reasonable and we just need to act on them, but rather begins with the idea that they are, in some sense, unreasonable, but that they can be made a little bit more so. So this um, same idea that democracy is, in reality, not a fixed form of government, but a kind of process of continuous improvement and self-understanding, I think it applies to the development of democracy in the modern world. We often think that, or we're often told that what made, made American democracy possible was um, some particular creed or set of beliefs um, that characterized the American population as a whole, uh, and that we will become great again if we could just recapture those beliefs and do what we did before and think what we thought before. And I think what America's heretical founders are telling us is that it actually works in a very different way. They're saying that, in fact, democracy did not emerge from some given unique and exceptional creed, but in fact, it emerged from a process of challenging that and from a certain ability to leave behind our heritage. So I guess in some, I, I, I still do want to insist that these people are, in fact, part of our heritage and we shouldn't leave them behind, but um, we will want to approach them, uh, I think, as not authorities on self-government, but as examples of it people that will teach us something, maybe as much by contrast, as, um, as sources of emulation. So I think I've run through my 40 or 45 minutes. All right, well, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>